Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. just want to say a word of welcome to those of you who are our guests. My name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, when you came in, you should have found a card on the seat somewhere around you. On one side of that's a place for some information about yourself so we can send you some information about us. Other side of that card is a place for any prayer requests that you may have. If there are things that we could pray with you or for you about, it would be our honor to do that. And so if you fill out one of those cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out today. There's also that same uh, form is on our homepage of our website. So you can fill those out there and submit them electronically if you would like to do that. I want to say a special word of welcome to John Graham. Uh, he's one of our mission partners. Uh, back home from India. Been home here now in the States for four weeks. Uh, spent four months over in India, training pastors, planting churches, uh, equipping workers in the field. And so if you have any questions about where some of our mission funding is going and how it's being utilized on the field, he's here this morning. I'm sure he'd love to connect with you after the service. So feel free to grab his arm, bend his ear a little bit with some questions and just hear what God's doing there in the rural parts of India as his word continues to multiply and disciples are being made. Uh, this morning, we continue our series, Foundations. Took a break from it last week. We're back in it this morning, looking at Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 26. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you want to follow along there as we read together this morning, feel free to do so. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, we'll read down through verse 26 together. It says, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, that's a good one, isn't it? Two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And after Reu lived, after, or, and Reu lived after he fathered Serug two hundred and seven years, and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived thirty years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor two hundred years, and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived twenty nine years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor, Nahor lived after he fathered Terah one hundred nineteen years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is God's word. You know, so often in our lives, uh, God is at work and we don't see it. Right? We don't recognize it. Because oftentimes, it's until, we don't see it until much later. 
because uh, sometimes it's just under the surface for us and we don't recognize what's going on. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who's laying by the pool of Bethsaida and he tells him to take up his bed and walk. Right Now the problem with this is for the Jewish peoples, was that was, it was on, the, on a Sabbath that he does this. And so whenever the Jews got wind of the fact that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, that Jesus had been working on the Sabbath, they commanded this man to take up his mat and walk, which was work to be done on the Sabbath as well. They get all up in arms. They begin to persecute Jesus. And so in John 5, 17, Jesus responds to their objections by saying this. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now by that, I take him to mean that God is always at work. He's always at work. Sometimes we see it. We see when and where and how God is at work. Other times, we don't see it. But just because we don't see when and where and how God is at work doesn't mean that God is on vacation. Right? He hasn't punched his time card and is taking some uh, well-deserved rest time in the Bahamas. Right? And when we come to a passage like the one we just read momentarily, Right? When we just read this morning, we may ask ourselves, how in the world do we see God at work here? I mean, you just read me a list of 12 names and their lifespans. Right? They had sons and daughters. How long they lived after they had sons and daughters. How long they lived before they had their firstborn child. Right? It's like somebody got you a gift card to Ancestry.com. Right? And that's what we're looking at this morning. So how do you see God at work in this list of names in Genesis chapter 11? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Although you wouldn't know it from the 29 degree low temperature we had last night. right? That we are entering into the meteorological season of spring. Now if you want proof of that, just drive by Lowe's or Home Depot and look at the garden centers where people are lined up to buy bags of dirt and pots of shrubs and flowers and fertilizer. Right? They're making bukus of money. And this is how people spruce up their yard every year, this time of the year. Right? Most of them buy the flowers in the pots. But some people, rather than buying the flowers in the pots, they buy seeds in the packets. And what they do with those seeds is they take them and they press them into the soil. And they cover them over and then they begin to water them. They begin to, to care for them and, 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 and nourish them. And over the course of time, that seed germinates. And that seed germinates below the soil before you ever, ever see anything above the soil. And when it germinates, it begins to send out roots into the soil. And those roots are sent out into the soil so that that seed can draw the nutrients that it needs to send sprouts up above the soil. And so before you ever see any green thing sprouting, pushing through the soil above the surface, there's already roots below the surface doing something. There's something happening under the surface before you ever see anything above the surface. And that's exactly what I believe we have here in this list of names in Genesis chapter 11. See, God is at work through this list of names. It's not merely a page of historical records. Rather, it's a passage that I believe is overflowing, teeming with, or abounding in hope. But in order to see it, you've got to look under the surface just a little bit. So that's what I want to do this morning as we take a look at this passage together. So I've got one point and one point only this morning, okay? As we prepare to receive the Lord's table. 
But as God's people in every age, when we can see him working, but especially when we can't see him working on the surface, we must learn to anchor our hope in God's promise. Anchor our hope in God's promise. Now, let me see if I can break it down for you like this. So, over the last several weeks, you've probably noticed a lot of fishing boats moving around town as they head out toward area lakes, right? It's that time of the year. As the air temperature warms, the water temperature warms, and the fish begin to move shallow to do their little annual mating ritual there in the shallow waters, drop their eggs, eggs are fertilized, those things sprout, and they begin to take on a life of their own. Right? And some of these boats you've seen moving around town over the course of these last several weeks have attached to the back of them, next to the outboard engine, these poles that stick up that are usually taller than the outboard engine. Now what those are, if you've ever wondered, they're shallow water anchors. Okay, so they come in various sizes made by different companies and each company has their own designation for what they call them. But they come in sizes ranging from 6 feet to 15 feet. But essentially, they all work very similarly. Whenever you push the button to deploy those shallow water anchors, it sends out rods below the surface of the water that stretch down to the bottom of the lake. Right? So six feet down, seven feet down, eight feet down, up to 15 feet down. And whenever they hit the bottom of the lake, they press into the substrate there at the bottom of the lake in order to anchor you in place. So there's no more like ropes throwing it over the side, right, with a big heavy weight to hold you in one spot. But these shallow water anchors deploy and they will hold you in one position. So the winds can blow against you. The currents can run past you and you stay secure and stable in place. So no matter what's going on around you, you stay in one spot, one place, one position to fish that area until you're thoroughly satisfied. You've caught all the fish there or there aren't any fish there. Right? But they hold you in place. They're shallow water anchors. And this is, I want to tell you something, church. This is how God's promises work in our lives. They serve for us as anchors. See, the circumstances of our lives can change. The winds can blow. The currents can run past us. But when you're anchored by God's promises, you will not be moved. You will not be shaken. Now, you can't anchor yourself with your own emotions. If you try to anchor yourself to your own emotions, guess what? Your emotions run as fast as the currents of life do. You cannot anchor yourself with your dreams because your dreams can either be fulfilled or they can be crashed upon the rocks as the winds blow. Right? So you can't anchor yourself with your dreams, your desires, or your emotions. You must anchor yourself to God's promises. Right? There are no other anchors that are sufficient to hold you when the circumstances of life are changing around you. Now, if you go, where in the world do you get this from this list of names? Let me see if I can show you. All right, let's go under the surface a little bit. Right, if you pan out a little bit from Genesis chapter 11 and you take into consideration the context from the fall in Genesis chapter 3 to the list of names that we see in Genesis chapter 11, you see the outworking of a promise. The outworking of a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, God plants a seed of hope. 
by promising subsequent to the fall, after our first parents take up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat and their eyes are open, they realize they don't have on any clothes and they cover themselves in shame and hide from God. God comes searching for them in the garden and when he finds them, he confronts them over their sin. He brings judgment upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. But in so doing, he also plants a seed of hope. Because he says, from the woman would come a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Who would deal the death blow to the devil. In Genesis chapter 3. And so the question going forward then is who is this seed? Where are they going to come from? In Genesis chapter 4, you realize very quickly that the seed's not going to come from the line of Cain. Cain who has risen up to slay his innocent brother Abel because God received his sacrifice made in faith. But rejected the sacrifice of Cain made in his own self-sufficiency. In Genesis chapter 5, you see that the seed would come not through the line of Cain, but through the righteous line of Seth, right? Whom Adam and Eve conceive and bear following the death of Abel. If you push forward into Genesis chapters 6 through 9, you see that sin has so corrupted the world that God would send a flood to judge all living flesh save one family, Noah and his sons and their wives along with all the animals they load onto the boat. So the line of the seed is narrowed further to the descendants of Noah because no one else is left. Late in Genesis chapter 9, you see a curse placed upon Canaan on account of the sin of Ham. Whenever he exposes his father's nakedness in the tent. So you recognize that the seed's not going to come through the line of Ham. Because Canaan, his grandson, has been cursed. In Genesis 10, you have the table of nations. Which begs the question, if God's promise is not to be broken, where will the seed come from? With the clans of Noah filling the earth, who will give rise to this seed that God has promised? In Genesis, in the first part of Genesis 11, God scatters the people and confuses their languages because of their desire to make a name for themselves and build a tower into the heavens. So now it would seem that it's a roll of the dice. How in the world would this promised seed arrive with all the peoples of the earth divided into their own nations and their own languages? So it is through this genealogy here in Genesis chapter 11 Right, that we learn that although God has scattered these post-flood peoples into separate nations and confused their languages, that the promise of the seed was not rendered null and void. The seed has been growing under the surface from the fall through the flood to Babel. And in verse 26 of Genesis 11, it becomes clear to the first readers of the text that the promise would be fulfilled through one man, Abram. See, at the end of the genealogy in Genesis eleven twenty six, we learn that from all the post-flood people scattered about the earth, that God had not forgotten His promise. Because if you were an ancient Israelite who would have been the first audience to read this text in Genesis chapter 11, you would have known of the significance of Abram. You would have known who he was. You would have known 
of his lineage and his legacy. You would have known it. If you were a member of the early church, you would have also known of the prominent place Abraham played, not only in, as the father of the Hebrews, but in the line of Jesus Christ himself. And so you end in Genesis chapter 11 with the hope of future salvation coming through this one man, Abram. This one that God had chosen. See, he had been working under the surface this whole time. Roots are going out. They're spreading through the soil. Before you ever see the little green sprout push through the surface in the man named Abram. That would one day grow into a mighty tree. Now, one other thing we need to recognize about this genealogy in Genesis 11 is that it parallels the genealogy in Genesis 5. Right? Again, we're panning out, taking into consideration the entire context. See, in Genesis 5, there's so many points of comparison between these two genealogies. I want you to consider a few of them. In Genesis 5, the genealogy traces the generations from Adam to the flood. While here in Genesis 11, the genealogy traces the generations from Shem to Abram. Both genealogies, what they do is they quickly organize very large extended periods of time. Right? Into, into uh, ten generations. And I believe that both of these genealogies are open genealogies, they're not closed. And what I mean by that is this. They don't include everyone who came during that time, but they include the ten that the author is trying to highlight for us to show the lineage as it moves forward through time. Ten was a number of completion. So in both of these genealogies, Moses is saying, this is complete. This is how the, the promise is being transferred from generation to generation. Both use the same vocabulary and literary patterns. They announce the age of the patriarch at the birth of their firstborn son, the number of years after the birth, and their fathering of other sons and other daughters. Right? You read them, they sound very similar as they work through each generation. Both of these genealogies, they segment into three sons at the end, naming the chosen descendant first. Not necessarily the firstborn descendant, but the chosen. Noah in Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 5, and Abram at the end of Genesis chapter 11. Pointing to the fact that they would carry the promise forward through those individuals. In addition, the seventh generation in each of these genealogies figures prominently. In Genesis 5, Enoch is the seventh generation, and he was the one who walked with God and was no more because God took him. Here in Genesis 11, it is Eber who is in that seventh slot from Shem to Abram, who was indeed the father of the Hebrews because he is, would be the one through whom uh, Abram would come as, their, as, his, as his, his line branches out, we'll see in a moment. But furthermore, in the combined genealogies, Eber is listed, if you put both of them together, Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, right, sandwich them together, Eber is 14th out of those genealogies, which is 7 times 2, right? And if you put those two genealogies together, Abram is 21st, which is 7 times 3, right? These these, these repetitive cycles or patterns are showing up as the author is highlighting the prominence of these individuals. 
Now, with all the things they share in common, there are a couple of notable differences that I think lead us to this understanding that the author is trying to infuse hope into the lives of his original audience and us as well. There's two things I want to highlight that are different. The first one is this. In Genesis 5, every time one of these patriarchs is mentioned, it's said that he was this age whenever he had this child, he lived this many more years, fathered other sons and daughters, and then he died. In Genesis 11, there is no mention of the death of any of these patriarchs. Now, that's not to say that they lived forever, but that is to say that the author's trying to highlight something different in those genealogies. In Genesis 5, he's highlighting the impact of sin upon humanity, that this guy lived, he had these sons and daughters, then he died, and then he died, and then he died. That refrain shows up over and over and over and over and over again in Genesis 5. And yet in Genesis 11, it's he lived this long after he had these children. It's not pointing to judgment and death, but it's pointing to Life and hope and salvation. Second is that the, the genealogy of Shem in Genesis 11, if you compare it to the genealogy of Shem in Genesis 10, if you go back into the table of nations there in Genesis 10, you find some differences in those genealogies as well. The genealogy of Shem in Genesis 10, right, carries through the line of Joktan. I think that's how you say it. Line of Peleg. See, in Genesis 10, the genealogy of Shem ends in what you might call a cul-de-sac. In other words, there's, not, there's nowhere to go forward. Right? In the dead-end line of Jobab. However, in Genesis 11, the in, it ends with this open future of salvation. That God would do something unique that He's never done in human history to this point. Saving all nations through one. See, Shem's, Shem's genealogy in Joktan, uh, through Joktan in Genesis 10 was followed by humanity's sin of the Tower of Babel and God's judgment, whereas his genealogy in Genesis 11 ends with the promise of Abram's birth. See, God, through these, this list of names, he's working to infuse hope and life, and to bring salvation to the world. So while one genealogy, Genesis 10, right, ends in disgrace at Babel, the other genealogy, Genesis 11, ends in grace through the birth of Abram. Now scholars, over and over again, have noticed this pattern in Genesis 1 to 11, where they see that as humanity's sin increases, because you see that, don't you? It starts with the taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the garden. Their eyes are opened. Genesis 4, you have the first homicide in human history as one brother slays another. Right? In Genesis 6, you have things that have gotten so bad, so corrupted, that God sends judgment upon the earth because sin is so pervasive. Even after he cleanses the earth in Genesis 9, you've got Noah, right, who gets drunk, passes out in his tent, and some weird things happen there. 
A curse is pronounced. Genesis 11, humanity, either from their, through their pride or their shame, is building a tower to make a name for themselves. They're on the, on the, on, on the plains of Shinar. And God confuses and scatters their language. But every time humanity sin, right? Every time humanity raises the ante, right? They push their chips to the center of the table and say, Hey, we're all in, God, against you. That God's grace shows even more brilliantly and brightly. There's this pattern of humanity's escalating sin and God's superabounding saving grace. See, their evil brings God's judgment upon them. And their judge, God's judgment eventually alienates them from God, leading to alienation from one another. Until eventually they're scattered into separate nations with divided languages. What starts as brother against brother in Genesis 4 ends as nation against nation in Genesis chapter 11. And that has continued to this day. Just read the headlines today as wars rage across the globe. However, God's grace will not let humanity entirely destroy itself. See, while they were still in the garden, God planted a seed of hope. And God carried that seed of hope from the woman. That there would be one who would come and defeat all evil. And out of the nations, God will call one nation to be a special people to bring salvation to all of the nations. So this list of names of Genesis 11 is God's gracious response to humanity's failure at Babel. Shem's seed preserves this line of blessing that will lead to Abram. And Abram initiates something entirely new in human history. One nation to bless all others. This is why, like you want to bring it down to, to our level. This is why whenever our kids are growing up in vacation Bible school, we sing a song with them. We sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. Let's all praise the Lord. And then some weird thing about right foot and left foot and hands and heads and jumping and those kinds of things, right? But Father Abraham did indeed have many sons. This is why in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul would write these words. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, Paul says, that no one is justified before God by works of the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ re- cursed be, for it is written, Christ, cursed be everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14 of Genesis 3, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
Through Christ, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. You know who that is? You. Me. That we would be blessed in Christ in the same way that Abram was blessed when God called him and covenanted with him, made an oath and a promise to him. That's what's going on in Genesis 11. That's what God is setting in motion through this list of names. And in Genesis 11, you see the first little sprig pushed through the surface as the roots begin have already been growing now for eight chapters. And that little sprig that pushes through in Abram will grow a little bit bigger in Isaac and a little bit bigger in Jacob and a little bit bigger as God redeems His people through prophets like Moses and leads them with, people, with, with leaders like Joshua and assigns priests like Aaron. And that little sprig would continue to grow. And as it grows throughout the ministries of the prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament, they would all culminate one day, even after a period of 400 years of silence, in which it seemed that God was not working. Does anybody ever feel that? That God is silent. He must not be working. How can God be working? There are roots still spreading below the surface. Because one day from the line of Abram would come the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king, the Messiah. And that's why even in the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable of the kingdom and he says, listen, Right? He says that the, 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 the kingdom is like this tree, like this seed that has been planted, and it grows into this mighty tree in which all the birds would come to nest. Which, if you've heard me preach that parable before, and I have several times, you've heard me say that those, the tree is the kingdom of God, and the birds are the nations of the earth, and it's in Christ that all of them come to nest under God's rule and reign. All of that starts in this list of names in Genesis chapter 11. Work. Even when we can't see it. So root your hope, anchor your hope, in his promise. That's why we also sing. My hope. Is built on nothing less. Than Jesus blood. And righteousness. I dare not trust. The sweetest frame. But wholly lean. On Jesus name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant. What is that? His promise. 
His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And after every single one of those verses, or at least three of them in old Baptist churches, you would sing the refrain, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Anchor your hope in God's promise, church. See, the thing about those shallow water anchors is that as long as you are on the shelf, of solid ground below the waters, you can anchor down as deep as they will stretch. But when you move off of the solid ground of that shelf and you try to send that shallow water anchor down into water that is too deep for it to grab the bottom, you're no longer anchored. And listen, there is a solid ground beneath the waters of this life if you will stay close to the shore of God's promises. But as soon as we decide to set anchor in our dreams, in our desires, in our emotions or our feelings, in what we can see, right, verifiable evidence sometimes in what we can see instead of living by faith in what we cannot see and believing that God is at work even whenever I cannot lay eyes on it. When we choose to set anchor on our dreams, desires, emotions, or what we can only see with these physical eyes, we move off of the shore of God's promises. There's no longer an anchor for us. But if we will cling to the shore of God's promises, there's always solid ground to set an anchor. So the current can run and the wind can blow. And we will be secure. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.